It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this message, I was just thinking and praying about what would be appropriate. It's really hard to follow up these really powerful series that we've been in the midst of and thinking about, okay, how do I just do a message to follow those because those were so good. And I felt that it would be really edifying to just share with you personal stories and and historical stories of God's faithfulness, answers to prayer. Because we can tend to focus on the negatives in our world today. We can focus on what's going wrong. And I love focusing. It's just an incredible faith-building exercise to focus on the faithfulness of God and just meditate on the faithfulness of God. And that's what this is. And the, the message is called Exceedingly Abundantly Beyond. And these are just stories of how God has gone exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. So that's, of course, from the scripture in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. And I know in my own life with answered prayer, so often that is the case, where I, my praying down here and God does something so much bigger than I ever could hope for or imagine. So the first thing I want to do is share with you two historical stories, two of my absolute favorite stories about God going exceedingly abundantly beyond, and specifically in answer to prayer. And the first one is something that happened in England in 1847. The mother, a Christian mother of a 17-year-old boy, was very troubled about her son's spiritual apathy. He had grown up in a Christian home from a young age, but worldly influences were, were impacting him, pulling away from his faith. He became very disinterested in God and spiritually lethargic. And she was starting to get more and more burdened about her son and just heartbroken over his spiritual apathy and his lack of passion for the things of God. And so one day she was just compelled to go into her room. She was staying elsewhere on a vacation somewhere, and she felt compelled to go into her room, lock herself in her room, get on her knees, and cry out to God for the salvation of her son, her 17-year-old son. And she, she prayed for hours and hours and hours over a couple-day period of time, and finally she felt that she had connected with God on this point, and he had heard and answered her prayer. So she started to praise God for the answer. Even though she didn't have any proof that her prayer had been heard and answered, she started to thank God for answering her prayer. And of course, this was in the the 1800s. You couldn't could just call up her son. Hey, did you <laughs> did you give your life to Christ? She, she couldn't find out until she went home a few days later. <clears throat> when she when she went home a few days later, her son met her at the door and said, "I have some news to tell you." And before he could say anything else, she said, "I know what it is. You have given your life to God." And she said, I've been praying for you for days. Now, that mother's name, as you may know, was Amelia Taylor. Her son was Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor is known as the father of modern missions. He spent 51 years in China, and the ministry that he was responsible for, that he began, was responsible for bringing over 800 missionaries into the country of China, who began 125 schools and directly resulted in 18,000 conversions to Christianity as well as the establishment of more than 300 mission stations with work among 500 local workers in all 18 provinces. This is just in his lifetime, let alone the ripple effects after Hudson Taylor has died and influenced the whole world towards missions. But a historian said about Hudson Taylor, no other missionary in the 19th century since the Apostle Paul has had a wider vision and carried out a more systemized plan of evangelizing a broad geographical area than Hudson Taylor. And countless missionaries have been inspired by his example. So here was this mother who was simply burdened for the soul of her son and decided to cry out to God for his salvation. And God did exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that she could ask or think. It never occurred to her to pray that he would become the father of modern missions, that he would be responsible for, you know, 18,000 Christian conversions in China just in his lifetime. But God delights to do exceedingly abundantly beyond. If you listen to the the series on Stanley Dale, that story of of Darlene Deidler, she was just 
crying out to God when she was on death row in a prison cell for one banana because she was starving and she had seen some bananas and it just caused her to know how nourishing that would be. And and God miraculously provided 92 bananas. Such a cool story. Exceedingly abundantly beyond. And that is who our God is. That's what he delights to do. I think we often just stop short in our expectations. What can God actually do? And we limit it to what we can logically figure out that he would do. But he says, I want to go exceedingly abundantly beyond. Another amazing story happened during the Second World War. And it happened in Egypt. There was an American missionary who was there. She was, her name was Lillian Trasher. She had started the very first Christian orphanage in Egypt. And she had, at that point, over 900 children living under her care and over 100 widows. So you know, she would always write back to the States, like these mothers in America who think they have their hands full with five or six children. I have 900 children under my care. And she wasn't married. She didn't have that support system. She had to kind of figure this out, just her and God. How am I going to provide? And so they were already living by faith for years. Every every day was an act of faith. How are we going to feed everybody? And God always provided. But then the war came. And a lot of their normal sources for getting supplies to their orphanage were cut off. And people couldn't money from the states anymore. People couldn't donate food. The local people in Egypt couldn't give because they were starving. And by, 19, by September 1941, it says that all the children's clothes were in tatters, and they were down to eating only one half cup of lentils a day. Just to survive, that's all they had in this orphanage. Everyone, <clears throat> including Lillian Trasher, they were all on the brink of starvation. And no one could help. They had nobody to, to cry out to but God in that situation because even those who wanted to help them could not get help to them. And so she decided that she was going to, she said, Lord, it's going to be a miracle for us to survive this. If you do not intervene in a miraculous way, we're going to all starve to death. She knew that was the reality. And so she suspended school for all the children, 900 children, 100 widows, And they all began to, they all stopped everything that they were doing, and they just cried out to God morning, noon, and night, all through the night, and just hearing these young children, these orphan children, just pray and cry out to God with such incredible faith. Lord, we know you're going to provide for us. We know you're a faithful father. We cry out to you. And it bolstered her faith to hear the children crying out to God like that. So they prayed all through the night. And in the morning, they received a telegram from the American ambassador, who she had never met and didn't know why they'd be contacting her. But they asked her to come to the American embassy. And they said, we have a Red Cross ship that is called the Cassandra Luladis, and it was carrying all these relief supplies for the war effort. And when it was nearing Greece, word came to the ship that Greece had fallen, and so the ship turned around because they didn't think they could land safely in Greece anymore, and they just kind of turned back to Alexandria to await further orders. And then they thought, well, the, the ship is in Alexandria, Alexandria Harbor. It's going to be attacked. We've got to dump the cargo and get out of here, run for our lives, basically. This, this is what was going on in the ship because of the attacks and the war and everything. And one Scottish sailor who was aboard that ship, the Cassandra Lulides, begged the captain to unload the cargo instead of dumping it into the sea. Get it off the ship. He said, we still have time. Let's just get it off the ship because I know someone who could use this. He had heard of Lillian's orphanage and he'd given money to the orphanage before. And his mother had been praying for this orphanage every single day. So it was on his mind. And at first the captain was like, that's dangerous. We don't have time to unload all the cargo. But the sailor just kept insisting, let's do it. Let's unload the cargo. And so finally, Finally, they, they took everything off the ship, took the stuff to a warehouse, and the ship got away under the cover of darkness. So then the American uh, embassy was saying to Lillian, do you have any need? Do you happen to have any need right now of food and supplies? <laughs> and she just was like, yes, we could use food and supplies. <laughs> They're all about to starve to death. So she went to Alexandria to this warehouse to see the cargo because they said, well, we have this Red Cross shipload of stuff that we could give to your orphanage. And the abundance of the provision of God just totally overwhelmed her. There were, because they had no clothes or food. And so on this ship, this is just a a little bit of what was on the ship, 2,600 dresses, 1,900 handmade sweaters, 1,900 boys' pants, 3,800 blankets, 1,100 towels, 12, let's see, 1,200 sacks of rice, loads and loads of food. And the list just went on and on and on. It It was literally like, so beyond what she could have ever 
asked or thought that God could do. And the supplies from that ship carried that orphanage through the rest of the war. That's how much food and clothing was on that ship exceedingly abundantly beyond and it's so encouraging to me there's loads of other stories like this those two I wanted to highlight because we serve the same God as Amelia Taylor and and Lillian Trasher and so many other Christians all throughout history who have seen God answer prayer in that mighty and miraculous way the question is are we willing to cry out to God and even if our our expectations are too low because both Amelia Taylor and Lillian Trasher would probably tell you my expectations were too low I just wanted to see my son come back to God. And God said, I have bigger plans. He's going to be the father of modern missions. And Lillian Trasher said, I, we just wanted to make it through a few more days without starving. And God says, I want to carry you through the whole rest of the war with my provision. And so even if our expectations are too low, if we cry out to him in faith, he answers. He hears and answers prayer. It doesn't always come in the package we expect, but he always does exceedingly beyond what we could ask or think. There is something about hearing stories that build faith, that really increase my faith. And it's not a common thing in the church today. It's really sad to me. We don't often sit around and talk about the faithfulness of God. In fact, a lot of modern churches do the opposite. They talk about disappointment with God, disillusionment with God, doubt toward God, how God may have let them down and how they're grappling through that emotionally rather than the faithfulness of God. Because when we really look at our lives, when we really look at what God has done for us, we serve a faithful God, and we will see that if we focus on his faithfulness. So just a few glimmers and glimpses from my own life and Eric's life that I wanted to share with you, in a, just in a personal way to make this, this even more applicable and real and personal. Now, I don't have anything dramatic, as dramatic as Amelia Taylor or Lillian Trasher, but I have some pretty amazing, just incredible stories that as I look back on them, they really bolster my faith. And going all the way back to my love story with Eric, when we were first getting to know each other, I struggled a lot with wondering if my commitment to give this area of my life to God would really be worth it. You know, all my friends were out there chasing relationships. They were, they were doing things kind of the world's way, and God had called me to something different, to wait faithfully for my future spouse. And there were times when I thought, I don't really know, God, if you are capable of answering this, this prayer that I would, you know, find my husband in a miraculous way because look at everybody else is just going out there taking matters into their own hands, manipulating their life to make something happen. You're asking me to trust you, and I just don't know if I can trust you. And so I would wrestle with this as a young, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-old girl, wrestle with this at night, wondering if I'd ever get married at all. Is trusting God really worth it? And the whole time, you know, every time God would bring me back to that place of commitment, Lord, I trust you. Even though I don't see you doing anything in this area and I really wonder if I'm making the right choice, I, I'm going to trust you. Well, the whole time I was, I was wondering about that and wrestling through that, some, somewhere else in the world was this amazing Christian man named Eric Ludy. And he was actually praying for me. Every single night he prayed for me before he ever even knew who I was, before he ever even knew my name. And he was writing letters to me. He was writing letters to his future wife about what his vision was for her life and praying specific prayers for her, his, her future, his future wife in these letters. And they were, it was incredible. So fast forward to after we got married, he gave me this notebook full of love letters that he that he wrote before we ever even knew each other. And it reminded me of the exceeding abundant goodness of God because here I was just hoping and praying that God would maybe bring a Christian guy into my life if I trusted him. And instead he brought someone who was actually loving me before he even knew my name, writing letters to me, praying for me every single day. And of course, you guys know the rest of the story. We, we, became, we had this love story that was just so far beyond what a human love story ever could be because God was at the center of it, and it influenced an entire generation. Again, that one little decision to say, God, can I really trust you? I, I, I'm giving this area of my life to you, and he went exceedingly abundantly beyond all that I could ask or think. We've now been married for, for anyone who might not know for over 25 years and I'm at that point where I'm losing track it's really sad and Eric's like it's 26 years and I'm like okay well my math skills just after 25 just I don't know what happened <laughs> but it has it has remained rock solid our marriage rock solid because it's
that's been centered upon Jesus Christ. It wasn't just a fulfillment of a dream back when I was a young woman praying for my future husband. It was a lifelong promise from God that's being fulfilled still in my life. Now, looking at our ministry life, we prayed for the ministry of Ellerslie, our discipleship training school, for those listening on the podcast. We prayed for this ministry. Eric prayed for 17 years for this vision to be realized in his life. When he and I were first getting to know each other, God was putting on his heart a burden to have a place where people, eager Christians could come and just be discipled, be grounded in truth, where they could have father, a father of the faith to, faith to pour into them. Basically, he wrote down on paper everything that he wanted as a young man in his Christian life that he really wasn't seeing anywhere else in Christianity. He was having a hard time finding a father of the faith to pour into him. So he said, what if there was a place, like a place, a set-apart place where people could come for a season and be poured into with truth and be grounded in truth. They could have a father of the faith. And his original vision was 12 young men at a time. I'm not sure where that came from. But I do remember the, the way he described the ministry that he felt God was calling him to in the future, sort of like maybe God can't give him a father of the faith right now as a young man, but he's calling him to become that someday for the next generation. He felt that really strongly. So he, he came over to our our house, our, my family's house, his family was visiting for dinner that night, and he brought this piece of paper out of his journal where he outlined this vision that God had placed on his heart for this discipleship place that people could come. And so keep in mind, this is before we were even married. This is 17 years before Ellerslie, Ellerslie ever was in existence. And yet he, he expressed this vision that God had placed in his heart, and it was, it's the exact vision of Ellerslie today. So it's pretty amazing. But so 17 years after that moment, when he, he read that vision to us, we all prayed over it and felt like God was going to bring this about in his own time, in his own way. I think Eric's original thought was that it would just be a little retreat center with 12 guys at a time. But God wanted to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that he could ask or think. And so after we had been married, we'd been traveling, we'd been speaking, we saw the amazing need for true discipleship among modern believers. We started to revisit that vision and say, is it time for us to establish a place like this? And we didn't know where we would do it. We didn't have the money for a, a big facility. And, and by this time, we had kind of decided this vision is going to go beyond just young men, and it's going to go beyond just 12 young men at a time. We, we really felt like we needed to disciple whoever was eager and hungry for discipleship, but we didn't know where to do this or how to make it happen, and we didn't have a, a denomination behind us saying, you know, we're going to fund this vision. If you, if you find a facility, we'll pay for it, and none of that was happening. And so we just, we just really began to pray pretty intensely at that 17-year point. Okay, God, we're feeling that it's time to start this. And we lived in the town of Windsor for probably two or three years before we knew that this campus existed. Because it's hidden back here, you know, in this obscure neighborhood, and, no, and, and nobody talked to us about it. We didn't know it, it was here. And so we were thinking, okay, we need a campus. We need, like, a place that has dorms and a place that has facilities where people could stay for a period of time and be discipled. Where are we going to find a campus? Little did we know there's one, like, a mile down the road from us uh, just sitting there. It wasn't being used and we had no idea it was there and we one day somebody told us about the campus and Eric came to see it and he was shocked that it was even here but he didn't like it at all <laughs> he it was ugly <laughs> and he he looked he looked through the whole thing it was run down it hadn't been used for a long time it just wasn't in good repair and he was like Ugh, well god okay if this is where you want us i guess you know all it's okay and uh we'll we'll just pray for it anyway if this is something god wants to do it did need a lot of work but you know maybe it'll be okay so we we finally we started to praying, we started to gain a vision for this campus and say, okay, Lord, we really do believe this is where you're telling us the discipleship vision is supposed to unfold, is on this campus. We kind of got to that place. And really, we're stepping forward in faith. Okay, God, we know you're going to do a miracle here. And had, had sort of a solution to be able to acquire the campus. It was some donors that had stepped up and had said, you know, we'll help you to this point. And we thought, okay, we can cobble together a way to purchase this campus. And right at the last moment, we were in negotiations, but right at the last moment, it was sold to somebody else who, of course, could swoop right in there and pay cash and, you know, looked a lot better than this ministry trying to scrape money together for it. 
And it was really a blow to our faith, I think, as we were just kind of like, okay, God, we felt like this was where it was supposed to happen, and now somebody else has bought this place. So a few more years went by, and we just continued to pray and say, Lord, if this is where you want it to be, you'll make a way. And meanwhile, the new owner fixed it up, made it beautiful, landscaped it, and a lot of what you see today on this campus was because it was bought by someone else, and they, they made it beautiful. They used it for a wedding business, and so they had to have a beautiful grounds for that. And a few years later, someone called us and said, if you are still interested in that campus, get on your knees quickly because it's going to be available again. And so, again, we were in a situation where we didn't have the money to buy it or really even to lease it. And the owner wasn't necessarily keen on, on leasing it to us because he had different visions for what he wanted to do with the campus and in selling it to a different type of organization. And yet we were, we were praying, we were very, very compelled to just say, okay, Lord, we're stepping out in faith again. We want you to answer this prayer. We feel like this is a burden you've put on our heart. So we started to cry out to God. And finally, it all, through a series of miracles, it worked out for us to lease part of the campus. Not buy it, but lease it, and not the whole thing, just part. And it was just the dorms. And this was, we were, it was, a, it was an act of faith because we, f we were already feeling like the summer was the time we were supposed to start our first discipleship training program. And this was like in early spring. And so we had begun to announce it. Okay, we're going to have our first discipleship training program. And we had students signing up for this program that was going to happen in the summer. But we only had the dorms. <laughs> we didn't have access to any of the other campus, the rest of the campus. And so... Our, Eric just had a, such a rock-solid faith that we would gain access to the whole campus, that they would lease us the whole thing by the time the students arrived. So we just, in faith, began to, to say, we're doing this. And we prayed, and, and some people that were like part of our ministry or on our board said, you know, you need a backup plan because if they don't give you access to the rest of the campus, you're going to have to hold like open-air meetings out in the grass. Like that's the only way you're going to be able to do any sessions. You won't have a microphone. You won't have anything. You just have to sit everybody, make it get a tent maybe. We had all these suggestions of what we could do. And there was going to be a different business happening on the other half of the campus. So if you can just imagine just the, the chaos of that. So we kept praying. And finally, it was literally like days before the first group of students arrived. We, we signed the lease on the entire campus. And God had, it had been a battle, but God had done exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. And as we prepared for that very first opening banquet, our first group of Ellerslie students, there had been a lot of attacks. If you've ever heard my message on fortification or some of my other messages, there was a lot of enemy noise as we started this discipleship ministry. People had said to us, you know, if you do a discipleship ministry, you're going to come off the road and you're not going to be traveling and speaking to big groups. It's going to be less effective. But one of the things that gave us a clue that it was probably going to be more effective to disciple smaller groups of people is because we had so much enemy attack and noise as we started to get Ellerslie off the ground. And one of the attacks was that we had our house flooded, our septic backed up, and our whole lower level of our house was totally under black water, and we had to evacuate our house. We had four children at the age of five at this point, and so we were all sick. I think the black water had made everybody sick because we didn't know it was there for a long time, and all the kids were on nebulizer treatments all throughout the day, and some of the kids were really little, like under one year, and it was stressful, and we were still trying to fulfill speaking commitments, and we were super sick. That was the time, if any of you have heard the story, where I got so sick that Eric had to show up and speak at a women's conference instead of me for the first night because I did, had, didn't even even have a voice and uh, they, they had all the teacups and flowers and very girly and he just shows up like hey I'm filling in it was kind of awkward but <laughs> he did he did fine you know he he gave him a very manly message for their women's conference uh, but it was it was hard and and we were gearing up for opening night banquet and Eric felt that he was supposed to find that original vision that God had given him 17 years earlier for this discipleship training school. At that point, it, w it wasn't called Ellerslie. It was called Men of Honor or School of Honor or something like that, and it had 12 guys in it. That was the original vision. But all of the principles, all of the core things that were supposed to happen in this ministry was exactly what was being established at Ellerslie. And he felt like he was supposed to find it. And I said, well, 
good luck. I mean, all of our possessions, these guys with hazmat suits had had to come into our house, and they took everything in our house, all of our storage, and like just piled it into a big mountain. So we had no idea where anything was, and this vision statement would have been in one of his old journals from 17 years ago. So how are we going to find that? I said, you're not going to, the banquet's in 45 minutes. You're not going to find that. And so he said, well, let's pray. So we prayed. God, if you want us to read this vision statement at the, the opening banquet, Lord, show us where it is. And so we went into the store, this huge mountain of storage bins, and the, it was the first lid he opened, and it was laying right on top. It was, it was, it was so crazy. It's like, okay, God, you hear and answer our prayer. And so he, he brought it to the campus, and as we, uh, that first group of, I think, maybe 45, 50 students that we had as they were gathered, and we saw this vision of 17 years being realized, and he read that statement that had, God had given him 17 years earlier. It was so overwhelmingly powerful to see the faithfulness of God. I think a lot of times we think, well, if I don't see God's faithfulness right away, when it first, when the vision first comes or when the need is first there, it's not, he's not faithful. This was 17 years of prayer before God answered the prayer, but how he answered it was so perfect and so beautiful. And one of the interesting things about that first group of students is that we had kind of a shortage of guys. We had a lot of girls and a shortage of guys, but we had exactly 12 young men in that group. And that was part of the original vision too. So thankfully we've had more than 12 over the past 11 years. But it was, even that was confirmation that this was a vision uh, that God had given Again, God hearing and answering prayer. There have been so many times over the past 11 years of, of Ellerslie, I guess we're going on 12 years now, or we're past the 12-year point, so past 12 years. I always measure it based on my daughter Abby's birthday because she was a newborn when we started Ellerslie, and she just turned 12 in June, so that's how I know the, the range of time. That's like the one math I can, mathematical equation I can remember from my history because of her age. But there have been times, it's been an, an act of faith the whole time, the whole journey. And there have been times when God has really tested us in our faith, if we're willing to trust his amazing abundant provision, exceedingly abundantly beyond. There was a time a number of years ago when we were facing just, tr again, tremendous financial challenge as a ministry. And we were all weary and we were all discouraged and wondering, you know, are we supposed to keep doing this? Our whole staff felt this way, like, is this really, like, is God still in this? Are we still supposed to keep going? And I remember Eric had said to Sandy, um, okay, we're $10,000 short. We need $10,000 tomorrow to be able to pay our bills. And I, he, said, he joked with her, he said, so go to the mailbox today and I'm, I'm expecting, you know, go, go find that $10,000 check for us, you know, just, just totally joking, because that's not a normal amount. People don't just usually give that much. And, and so we were just thinking, okay, God, we're just leaving this in your hands, because tomorrow we have to have this. And, and Sandy, later that day, came into a class that Eric was teaching, and she, she waved him down as he was teaching, and she was holding a check in her hand. She said, I found it. I found the $10,000 check. It was in the mail. There have been times when our team has just been, had physical issues going on and yet had miraculous stamina for the ministry that we're called to. I remember Eric, he's never in 12 years of Ellerslie had to miss a, a speaking event or a speaking day, or a speaking message because of health reasons, and yet there was one time when there was a graduation from one of our semesters coming up, and graduation is special. It's important, you know, to kind of give that final commission as people are going back to wherever it is that God has called them to be, taking that message with them, and he didn't want to just miss graduation, and yet he was super sick. Like, he couldn't even sit up in bed. He was that sick. And so he prepped his notes for the graduation message by me holding up the phone to his ear as he's laying flat on his back, and he's dictating over the phone to Sandy, and she's taking notes and trying to make a keynote for him for his message. He couldn't even sit up. That was how sick he was, and he, he said, I was just doing it in faith. I was just preparing this message in faith that by the next day, I'd be able to deliver this message. And he said, even going to that graduation, he was super weak. He would just like barely could walk. And he just kind of had to stay sitting down and not talking to anyone until it was time to deliver the 
message, but he said the minute that he got up to speak the message that God had put on his heart, all his strength came back, and he said he was even like intensely preaching. So this, this is going from like 24 hours ago, flat on his back, couldn't move, couldn't do anything, to his intense, passionate preaching 24 hours later because of the faithfulness of God, because God hears and answers prayer. Those are a few ministry highlights. There are many more I could share. A few family highlights that I want to share with you. Because I feel like, you know, it's easy to believe God for, like, big ministry things. But what about the everyday family stuff that we deal with? And I've seen God's faithfulness in so many ways in my family life, just being a mom of young kids. And I've heard other moms say, well, you know, prayer isn't a very practical solution to all the challenges that you face with kids. We need seminars. We need books. We need self-help guides for moms. You know, they need more than just prayer. I've heard moms say that. But for me, I found that prayer is a far better tool than any self-help book, any seminar has ever been in my life as a mom, as a wife, as in our family. The, the first year of Hudson's life, he's our oldest child, and he is now 16. But I think back to when he was a newborn, and he had a really rough start. We had, even his whole birth was pretty traumatic. He ended up in the hospital in kind of a very stressful situation as a newborn. And then he had acid reflux the whole first nine months of his life. We were, we were up with him all the time. We were losing our mind. We felt like we were losing our minds. But that's when God taught us about tensile strength and becoming a spiritual athlete. So it was, God used it. But as he became like about a year old, from one to two years old, he was getting hurt all the time. He was very like accident prone. He would just he was an active little boy like all little guys are when they're first walking around but he was just always going to the urgent care going to the ER he got sick a lot too so he had to go get emergency like IV treatments when he would get dehydrated and things like that and and finally Eric and I just looked at each other one day and said maybe God wants us to pray he has a better a better plan for the first year of Hudson's life than being in the ER being in urgent care every two weeks and I, I remember one specific time when Hudson was two we were having a social worker come visit our home because we were in the process of adopting Harper. And we were trying to put our best foot forward and really show that we're good, responsible parents and we you know, have this well-cared-for child. Well, like two minutes before she shows up, he falls in the garage. He jumped off a, a step and, and went flat on the concrete with, and got a huge goose egg on the, his forehead. I mean, it was like sticking out, like cartoonishly sticking out. And we were like... The timing of this is horrible. Like, here's this social worker coming, and we have a screaming two-year-old with a fat goose egg on his forehead, and thankfully she was gracious. But we started to realize, okay, this, we could be praying about these things. And so we started to pray, God, will you turn this situation around? And as we did, there was an amazing miracle that happened in Hudson's health. He went from being in urgent care ER at least once a month to after the age of, like, two and a half when we really started to pray never again. I mean, he's never had an emergency again where we've had to rush him to the hospital or to urgent care, and he's 16 now. God was so faithful, and it truly was a, a dramatic miracle that took place in Hudson's health at the age of two. Hudson also had frustration issues as a little boy, and uh, I don't think he would mind me telling you this now that he's 16. When he was like two, though, he would get like really frustrated if trains wouldn't go together correctly or things like that and just like, uh, and scream and all that. And I remember one time, we laugh about this story now, but he got mad about something in the mall. And I don't remember what it was. And we, we made the mistake, and he was starting to throw a tantrum. We made the mistake of putting him down in the middle of his tantrum. And so he took off running down the mall, crowded mall, like screaming at the top of his lungs and running as fast as he could away from us. And we were like chasing after him. And, you know, I, at that moment, I lost all my judgment. I used to kind of judge moms. They were like, get your kid under control. I had total sympathy for every mom I had ever seen in any grocery store with a screaming child at that moment. But we, again, began to pray and take a stand for those tantrums, that frustration issue that he had at the age of, like, two. And, again, completely, it completely went away. I mean, it completely res resolved within months or weeks, really. And if you knew him now, you would laugh at the thought of him ever doing anything like that. He's so just even keel and, and just non-emotional non and just a great guy. And he's been that way since a very young age because of those prayers. And some of you know that we, we adopted Harper, and I'll just give you a few little 
tidbits of answered prayer in that season of my life. I, we had had a miscarriage before Harper's adoption, and it was a really, really hard and stressful and devastating thing to walk through. And I remember feeling like, God, how could you possibly ever use this in my life? This is so heartbreaking. This is so devastating. I, and you start to kind of question and doubt God. Why did you allow this to happen? And I felt like God said, as we cried out to him, that he was going to turn everything that was meant for evil in this situation into a blessing, into something good. If we would trust him, if we would pray and cry out to him for him to redeem the situation. Through those prayers is how we gained a vision and a passion for vulnerable children. God just put it on our hearts as such a strong burden that there are vulnerable children all around the world. And the way we felt about our lost unborn child was the way his heart was breaking over the need of these unborn children all around the world. And so we just decided to aggressively pursue what can we do for the 143 plus million orphans in the world. And that's when God said, start with one. And we didn't know what that meant, but we felt like God was telling us that because he doesn't see 143 million. He doesn't see the number. He sees each individual life. And he wanted us to have that heart as well for the individual lives. And we, we couldn't help the many unless we were willing to start with the one. And so we went to an adoption agency. A lot of you know the story. Not really with the intent to adopt, but just with the intent to say, we're available. Let's explore the issue. Let's see what, what God might have for us here. And, and fast forward, we ended up because God really impressed upon us that we were supposed to adopt this child. I'm not going to tell you the whole story because it's, it would take the whole rest of the time. It's a really amazing and beautiful story. But as we stood up to adopt Harper, one of the things I will say is that if you really want to see miracles of God in your life, stand up for the vulnerable, those that are on the heart of God in a special way, those vulnerable, um, the least of these, the especially them, as Eric would call it, the the imprisoned, the refugees, the foreigners, the widows, the orphans, the sick, those that need the imprisoned, those that need that extra special measure of hope and grace and love. And as we started to stand for this one vulnerable child, we started to see miracles. We started to pray. And it's interesting because right when we were going through her adoption, we were also learning wrestling prayer. We were learning that prayer is not just about, oh, God, please help with this and move on. But it's like wrestling in prayer until you know that the breakthrough has come, that God has said, I've heard, and the answer is, is on its way. And so we were in the middle of wrestling prayer in all these different situations through Harper's adoption. One of the things that we had prayed for is that it would be the fastest adoption that the agency had ever done. Now, this agency had been around since the 80s, so they had been doing adoptions for a long time. And I, it was my idea to pray this, by the way, because Eric was like very practical. Well, it's okay if it takes longer. We have all these book deadlines, and we have so, And I was like, how can you be so heartless? This is our daughter in Korea that you are purposely not caring if she doesn't, you know, get home sooner. And so he agreed after my pleas and manipulation. He agreed that we were going to pray this way. So we were praying together. It would be the fastest adoption ever. And so many things can slow you down in the middle of an adoption process. One particular set of fingerprints, some of you know this story, we had to get our fingerprints like done by the FBI or something. And we went down to Denver to plead our case because normally this process would take like six weeks or eight weeks and it would slow the whole thing down by a couple of months and I went down there in person to try to plead my case and I brought a letter about Harper and I was going to sit down and share this whole story but when I got down there to this office it was not looking good because there was just a, a glass partition and you had to talk to someone through these bars and I thought okay they're not going to even listen to me but as I, I shared the story, the lady was like, no, we won't expedite it. We can't make it go any faster. And then a lady walked in right as I was talking. She was pregnant, and she was a supervisor, and she heard about this baby in Korea who needed to get home, and she said, let me make a phone call. And she made a phone call, and she came back, and she said, you'll have your papers back in a week. It was going from eight weeks to one week because of prayer exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ask or think. When Harper was preparing to come home, people really gave us a lot of negative feedback um, because it was our first adoption and they said, you know, you're going to really have to deal with all sorts of problems with this child. She was only six months old, but they were like, she still has the trauma of being placed for adoption and being pulled into a different country and being thrust into a new family. And we got a lot of advice from people. You know, here's the name, this is a real story, here's the name of a Buddhist 
uh, psychologist that you can go to when your daughter starts having all these emotional problems. Here's his card, and he's a Buddhist, but he's really good. And then, oh, here's the name of medication you can put her on when she starts to go crazy and won't bond with your family. Just so you know, here's the medication you should be taking. And we just decided, okay, we're going to approach this totally differently. We're going to remember the power of God in prayer. And so the first thing that we prayed for was that she would not, that she would know her family as soon as she got off the plane, that she would come to us and know us and feel completely at peace. Well, it didn't seem to be starting out very well because when she got on the plane from Korea to the States, she was with my mom who went to pick her up. She was a mess. She had extreme stranger anxiety and she had been taken away from her foster mom as the only person who had ever raised her up to that point and thrust into the arms of a complete stranger and put on a plane and all of her normal routines were, were out of whack. And she was like, what is going on with my life? You know, as a six-month-old baby, she was totally stressed out. And she was screaming to the point where they were like, we're going to have to medicate her just to get her home. And my mom was like, why did I sign up for this? Like, I have this screaming child, and it's like an 18-hour flight or something, and these people are going to hate me. And, but that, we prayed that there would be no stranger anxiety, that God would do a miracle. We were praying the whole flight. We, Eric and I were praying and crying out and wrestling in prayer. And a, a woman came up to my mom on the plane who was Korean. She didn't speak any English, but she said, give me the baby. And my mom just like, take the baby. I don't care who you are. Just take her. And she, was, she stayed with her the whole plane flight. And she soothed her. She spoke Korean to her. She held her the way she was used to because she was a Korean woman. She knew how they care for babies and totally calmed her down. And at the end of the flight, she brought her to my mom. And she got a, tr a translator to say to my mom, I'm a Christian, and God told me to take care of this baby on this flight. A direct answer to our prayer. And then if you've ever seen the videos, when Harper got off the plane, she just came right to us. She was beaming. She was happy. She was like, I'm finally home. This is my family. And that is pretty unheard of when a child's been through that much trauma. And a social worker came to our house the next day, and they said, why did they flag her file? They flagged her file to say, this girl is going to have stranger anxiety. She's going to need medication. She's going to have attachment issues. They had labeled her with all these things, and the social worker showed up and saw how bonded she was after 24 hours and said, I don't know why they wrote any of that down. She's fine. She I remember the social worker saying she knows who her parents are. She knows. And that's exactly what we had prayed for. Again, the miracles of God, his faithfulness just is so incredible. I remember, fast forward a couple of years later, we had chosen to adopt again, and we were sitting in the hospital as our third child was being born. So we were invited to the hospital as the birth mom was giving birth to the child. And <laughs> it, was, it was a really an interesting time for me. I'm trying to figure out how I condense the story. But it felt like there were a lot of threats against that adoption in those last few hours before he was born and as he was coming into this world. At the same time, I found out I was pregnant right at that time in the hospital waiting for this child to be born. And yet a lot of fear was hitting me because my previous pregnancy had been a miscarriage. So I had this wrestling of fear that I might lose both of these children. Like this adoption might not go through and I might lose the child that I just realized I was pregnant with and have to walk through that all over again. So I remember being in the hospital during the time that he was being born since I wasn't the one in labor, I was just praying the whole time. I was writing in my journal. I was crying out to God, Lord, please, please do a miracle here with this adoption. Do a miracle with this pregnancy. And God's faithfulness was incredible, how he worked in that adoption. And Kip was able to come home without drama, without, without hindrance. And seven months later, Abby was born without hindrance. And so both of those children... God gave us without, without attacks from the enemy, without it falling apart. Like the enemy was hitting me really hard, saying it's going to fall apart. And God did the opposite through prayer. And then, of course, the story of Reese and Lily's adoption. It was the hardest experience of my life. We had had two other adoptions before this, but their adoption was like a nightmare for 29 months. There was extreme corruption involved. There were so many temptations just to walk away, but we never felt the freedom to walk away from these two children. But there were times when the whole thing seemed totally impossible. And I remember we had to start over. The adoption was supposed to be quick and easy and not cost very much. It was long, it was stressful, and it cost a ridiculous amount of money because we had to keep re 
doing the process. We had to keep going back and starting over because things had been done wrong or there had been corruption involved and we had to get rid of this person and hire a lawyer to get us through. And it was just, we were just at that point. And, and someone called me, I think it was our new lawyer that we had hired and said, you know, everything hinges on this one judge signing a certain paper. And in Haiti, it's totally unpredictable. The judge might decide to take a three-week vacation. He might be in a bad mood that day. It's not going to be based on anything logical. It'll just be based on if he decides to sign it or not, not sign it. If he doesn't sign it, you're not bringing these children home. It won't happen. And this is after probably 24 months or so of, of labor and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and tears and prayer. And so we got our kids together and we prayed and we cried out to God for that one judge to sign that one piece of paper. And we, when we finally got the news at the end of that day, the judge had signed the paper. The adoption was going forward, at least to the next step. And it was really precious because Reese and Lily, they were a little bit before turning two at that point, or they might have been right around two years old. And those that were caring for them in Haiti said, the judge said yes. They were trying to explain to them, like, the judge said yes, this can, you're going to be able to go home someday, someday soon. We didn't know when yet, but someday soon you'll be able to go home to your family. And, and they were running around their little uh, facility where they were being cared for, and they, they interpreted the story as God said yes. So they were running around these little two-year-olds going, God said yes, God said yes, and they're all happy. I don't think they really knew what they were happy about, but it was cute how they said God said yes. Like even in their two-year-old understanding, they realized it's God who said yes, not just a judge who said yes in answer to prayer. So 29 months after wrestling and crying out to God for the impossible, because there were a lot of other families caught up in the same adoption process with some of the same corrupt groups that never were able to bring their children home. And we had two we were trying to bring home out of this really difficult situation. And it did seem impossible, and there were times that I really did not know if God was going to do this. But Hudson, who was our oldest, he was, you know, seven, eight years old at the time, he was putting signs all over the house of Reese and Lily saying, coming home soon, exclamation point, coming home soon. I mean, our kids had faith. They knew it was going to happen. And that was one of the reasons I couldn't walk away because, you know, my children were like, it's happening. God's going to do this. And so we just kept praying. And one of the most beautiful scriptures that God has ever given us in regards to caring for the vulnerable is Job 29 where it describes how he breaks the jaws of the evildoers and rescues the victim from his teeth. And it was such an incredible vision of just that God's rescue pattern. And it had just been a very significant, that's why Studio 29 and Coffee 29, and you'll see the number 29 a lot in, in the Ellerslie world because Job 29 is significant for us, specifically with regard to standing for the vulnerable. Well, when we got the news that everything had gone forward in Reese's and Lily's adoption, all the way through the approval with the American Embassy, and they were actually ready to come home whenever we were ready to bring them, we found that out on the 29th day of the 29th month that we had started their adoption process. God was hallmarking it, saying, see, I've been it the whole time. I've been hearing and answering your prayers and doing exceedingly be abundantly beyond all that you could ask or think. Now, the other miracle that happened is I had prayed, okay, these are toddlers now. I, we had wanted to bring them home when they were babies because the bonding is so much easier and, you know, you don't, you don't have as many hurdles to get over the younger they are. Well, they were like almost three by the time they came home and we had started the process when they were newborn. So when they, they'd, we'd only seen them twice. We'd only been there for two short visits to see them in person and we had done Skype, but these are toddlers. So how aware are they supposed to be that they're going to a new family and this is their mom and dad? You know, what can you really expect? But I began to pray. I said, Lord, you, you did this with Harper. She recognized her family when she got off that plane. I asked that you would do it with Reese and Lily. And so I was going to meet them at the gate. They were, Eric and Hudson had met them in Florida and had a really neat first encounter with them, and then flew from Florida to Denver, and I was given special permission to go through security and go all the way to the gate to welcome them off the plane. And I thought, you know, this has been such a miserable process. Like, this has been the hardest adoption we've ever gone through, and I'm just so glad it's over with. I'm not going to get emotional. I'm just going to be like, great, they're home. Let's move on. Of course, I'm not going to get emotional. And that's what I'm telling myself as I'm walking up to the gate. But they got off that plane, these little almost three-year-olds, and they, at the top of their lungs, yelled, Mama! And they started running towards me, yelling, Mama. 
yeah, I didn't get emotional at all. I got totally emotional. I started bawling because it was like a miracle. I was watching a miracle right before my eyes. I mean, how many people can say, yeah, a three-year-old who's only seen you once or twice in their life when they were really little knows that's your mother and you're going to run straight toward them yelling mama. And they just were so ready to come right into my arms. It was a work of God. It was an answer, direct answer to prayer. He didn't just bring them home after that long battle. He brought them home with fanfare. He brought them home with this incredible miracle that they knew they were coming home and they were so excited to run right into our arms. These stories have built our family's faith. Our children have seen the faithfulness of God and we've brought them into some of our hardest tests that we've had to really pray for and say, you know, it doesn't look like this is going to work out. It doesn't look like this is going to go through, but let's pray. And as God has worked in their lives to just continue to pray with that childlike faith and then shown himself faithful, their faith has been built. So through these, these stories, I have many more I could share. Those are just some highlights. I just want to encourage you today to hallmark the faithfulness of God in your life. If you really look back at the way that God has worked in your life, you will see incredible faithfulness. Don't listen to those voices that say, oh, he let you down or he's not to be trusted. He is only faithful and only good. And one of the ways that I love to remember his faithfulness in my life is journaling, journaling every prayer and answer to prayer and then looking back a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago and seeing right there before my eyes the amazing faithfulness of God. And some stories I wouldn't even remember if I hadn't written them down. I was like, oh yeah, God, you were so faithful in that and you're going to be faithful to me again because I see your faithfulness all throughout my life. Or people, I've known people who create an actual pile of stones, a memorial, when God does something significant in their life, a significant answer to prayer. It's like the pile of stones that, the, that they made in the Old Testament as a monument to what God did. So people will like, put these rocks in a bowl and like write on it the date and what happened to remember what God has done or make some other kind of special memorial of the, the faithfulness of God in your life and constantly refer back to his faithfulness when you're tempted to question his faithfulness today because he has been faithful before and he will be faithful again. Let's never forget what a faithful God we serve. He hears and answers our prayer exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. Just want to finish with this scripture from Deuteronomy. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. That is such a beautiful description of who our God is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are faithful, that you are trustworthy, that we can bring every care and concern to you. You hear and answer prayer, and you delight to do exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith in you today, that you would bolster our faith, and that you would not allow us to listen to the doubt, the cynicism that is all around us, but that we would be among those in this generation that look to you and say, we know we can trust our God. We know he will be faithful for the small things and the big things. Lord, make us men and women of prayer and men and women of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.